Welcome back to the Present Process Podcast, where we talk about plays from playwrights that you may or may not have heard of and illuminate the process of writing. This week, we're talking to Melissa Crespo and Sarah Saltwick about their play, Egress. As always, if you have a new play exchange profile, I highly recommend you give the play a read before listening. This episode may contain strong language and other adult themes, and you can find an in-depth content warning in the description. Thanks for listening. All right, so I am here with Sarah Saltwick and Melissa Crespo, and we're talking about their play Egress, uh, which is really great, and I can't wait to get to the, uh, get to talking about it. Uh, but first, uh, it's fun because we have a we have a pair of playwrights who wrote the play together, which is a lot of fun. And so um, I just want to get started. I want to know who you are as the playwright uh, and like where you're from and what sort of theater you're usually involved in. I'm Sarah. I'm based in Austin, Texas. Um, I've done a lot of theater here in Austin, as well as other places. I attended UT Austin for my MFA and also went to Hampshire College for my undergrad and was involved in theater there. Um, Definitely coming from a scrappy theater, independent background, um, having a lot of fun with experimental theater and thinking about what you can do on stage with the simple theatrical elements of actors, words, a little bit of design, but finding a lot of inventiveness. And Austin's been a great place to see new work and see people making incredible theater with uh, words and actors and a little bit of design often in found spaces. So I have been writing for, for quite a while and had a great agent, Alexis Williams, um, who is also Melissa's agent and who connected us probably seven years ago. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's not her agent anymore. <laughs> not her agent anymore. Not to the playwrights realm. Um, but this was my first time working with another person so closely to develop a story. And it was great. You know, playwriting can be quite lonely and it can be hard, especially in those first drafts to know where you're going to know what's landing and having somebody to play ideas off of um, really made the process more fun and our play deals a lot with fear and and anxiety and danger and not feeling safe in the world so it could be a dark place to be in but working with Melissa helped keep it alive and helped me keep going back into it. Oh, fair. I miss you. I am <laughs> Melissa Crespo. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I am based in New York City. And uh, I'm also the associate artistic director of Syracuse Stage. So I'm in I'm both places most of the time, uh, back and forth. Um, and uh, yeah, I am a writer who directs. I direct way more than I write, um, which is why I was like, Sarah, can you want, do you want to do this with me? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm a director who uh, mostly directs new plays, particularly plays that have never been produced before. So the writing part was um, for Egress was uh, really, really um phenomenal and in terms of you know um all of like if you think you know what playwriting is but you really don't (laughs) until you finally do it um and as a director um you know directing is lonely just like writing is so I really really love writing with another person particularly Sarah um and I'm writing something alone now and it's really sad (laughs) uh but um uh, yeah, I, I've i been in theater all my life. I was an actor and then I was director and then picked up playwriting very late. Um, but the play development process is the number one goal of mine and and really, really getting to the heart of what a playwright seeks and what they're what they see in their head and, and feel in their hearts and making that dream come true um, is 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 my whole career. I actually have a show that just opened a week ago at MCC world premiere, uh, Bees and Honey by Guadalupe del Carmen. It was actually the play that we were in rehearsals for when COVID shut everything down. So three years later, here we are. (laughs) Um, 
and egress was a while ago in terms of Sarah and I's process. And then it's been produced in different forms of more than four times, but um, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Um, so it keeps bringing us together and just so happy people are into it, especially because it's a topic, the themes in the play never go away, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think um, the context of the play, which Sarah and I found out during the world premiere in Texas uh, at Amphibian, uh, because our our world premiere also got interrupted by COVID, um, the context of safety we could not have imagined COVID playing into that. So yeah, I I just want to um, continue making theater that also um, plays with form, which I think is why Sarah and I made a good team. We're both really into that. And yeah, here we are. That's great. That's great to hear. Uh, and I, I know the first thing that when I was reading it for the first time, is just the the tone and the feel of the script felt so unique. Um, and maybe that, I don't know if like it came from one side or, but I feel like it's probably a mixture of both. Um, it felt so different and that's why I was immediately drawn to it. Like I had to keep coming back to it, um, mm-hmm. which is why it's one of the first ones when I'm coming back uh, recording some more episodes is, I just kept thinking about it right after reading it the first time I had to keep coming back. So I was like, well, if I'm doing that, I have to, <laughs> I probably have to feature it. Right. Because if it's really stuck in my mind this much, I have to talk about it. But uh, just sort of going back to how you guys met and how you started working together. So uh, you met through your collective agent at the time. Um, but like what, what drew you together and made you both want to collaborate on the work together? Like, what did you feel like the other person brought that you felt like meshed with what you were bringing? So uh, a play about guns is something that I had been obsessed with a little bit. I think obsessed is the right word um, because uh, I, my family and I, I was, I grew up in Connecticut, but we moved to Northern Virginia when I was in high school and I went to UVA and Northern Virginia is, I mean, there's like so many kids go to either UVA or Virginia Tech or VCU and our neighbors um, lost their daughter, Rima, in the 2007 Virginia Tech massacre, which was devastating. And um, and then shortly thereafter, Newtown, uh, Sandy Hook happened. Um, and I'm not that, I'm not that far from there. And the phenomenon of mass shootings and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, living in Virginia and then noticing there's gun, there are gun shows <laughs> just down the street. And, and I, I became a bit obsessed with just the, the journey of what that research entailed. And so, um, and I, I had, I had been trying to write it, but I put it away because um, I couldn't really figure out which way it was going. And then, you know, fast forward, I had Alexis as my agent and she's such a genius at pairing artists together. She was always sending me plays or saying, hey, you need to go talk to this writer or designer. And um, and I happened to be directing a show at Amphibian Stage in Fort Worth, Texas. And I had never been to Austin. And I was like, hey, Alexis, I'm going to Austin for one day. Who should I meet? And she told me to meet Sarah and I had read a couple plays of hers and I'm so I was so impressed with the way she writes women particularly women that are really smart and um, just her voice was so singular and we went out to lunch and really hit it off and my gut is pretty good at telling me what to do and I'm good at listening to it and a month later I was like hey Sarah I called her on the phone do you want to, I have this play I had, and I had um, in that, in that summer also found finally the outline and the, 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 the narrative. And luckily she said yes. And, <laughs> and this was before zoom was a very popular thing um, pre COVID. So um, this was in the summer of 2016, right, Sarah, um, so, that we yeah. met. And um and so we, we, me living in New York City and Sarah living in Austin, Texas, over the over a short year, uh, 
over email, FaceTime, phone, uh, and Skype at the time were, uh, you know, just sending each other pages, ideas, research. And, you know, I had the the research and the outline and the characters, but I, I have to really credit Sarah for the, the that voice you're hearing, that, that tone. Um, mm-hmm. Sarah's prose is beautiful. And, um, and she, I, I remember that first monologue that opens the play being the thing that I was like, oh, there we go. And then it just took off from there. And, and the thing, the thing that, um, so we were, the first production of the show was a workshop at Cleveland Playhouse where we were selected for the Roe Green Award. And um, that was when we were finally like in the same place writing together. And what was, what was great is, you know, I would do rewrites, but then Sarah would make them into the voice of the play. And so, <laughs> and now I feel like we have to do that less and less because it's been so many years. Cause I, I'm, I, I've like picked up Sarah's tone, like, you know, voice, but um, in egress that is, but um, you know, and, and, and I think Sarah and I have no ego about uh, the writing process, you know, like we really, it's a yes. And uh, we respect each other. We, we, um, and yeah, and I think that's why it's been so easy. So that's the, the long answer to how we met and how things came out. I remember those first conversations of Melissa having, really strong ideas and questions about gun ownership, about safety, um, about women owning guns, particularly, and how sort of thinking through that process of someone buying a gun for the first time and what questions they might ask. But this, this wondering of like, how do we put all of this into a play? And those all those ideas felt so compelling to me. And then just like ideas kept popping into my head, which is a sign to me of like, okay, this is something I should be working on. And really early on, I just had this flash of like, okay, the central character is an architect. Um, and part of what we're going to experience in the play is around spaces. And this idea too, that we'd become aware of the theater that we're in while we're watching the play came in pretty early. And this idea of how do we use theatrical space to create this claustrophobic environment where you're really close to this main character and on the journey with her. And the play is a lot of it is in direct address in second person. So this idea, the main character is named you. And she says, you know, you are here, you are a woman. And it, I wasn't sure how that was going to work, but there was something just sort of mysterious and magical about it. And it did feel like, okay, if this works, this is going to cast a spell that's going to carry the audience through this experience. And I think a nice thing about working with a director writer is just keeping the prose active. You know, there's a lot of monologues. There were some things that was we were doing in the early drafts that I felt like I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> with like <laughs> playwriting teachers. I'm just like too many monologues, too much talking to the audience. Like, you know, um, we played a lot with where different information was revealed, especially in some of the later things of, mm-hmm. you know, we don't want to reveal too much too early, but we also don't want to hold on to information when we don't need to. Cause sometimes it's more powerful to know something early on and to see how that's impacting the characters than just to get that reveal. Um, so there was, there was a lot of playing around with that, but yeah, the, cause there's monologues to the audience and then there's also lectures because she's just become a professor. So working in that solo form was interesting. I mean, this is a play where the main character never leaves the stage and our actors who have played you, I think a lot of them had trouble sleeping while they were working on the show, <laughs> you know, it really like infiltrated their psyche and it requires a lot of them. It requires a lot to, for them to hold the play and show us this, make this internal journey external. And I think that was a lot of our revision process was like helping externalize these internal things. When I was reading it, it came off to me like you captured what I think a lot of film does, like good movies do is they, Mm. um, is like, it's kind of the problem theater has. It's like in right in the triangle of literature, film and, theater where theater has to be active right you can't have a lot of internal going on but you found a way to make that internalized experience active for the audience which i think feels 
really cool. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was so drawn to it is I said, oh, this is so unique because they're pushing that boundary, right? They're not just saying we can't have it be internal. They're finding mm -hmm. a way to make it work. Um, and so that, and then again, it's just like along with the tone and the dread, right? Where you're kind of uh, going along with the main character that was really special and uh, just to hear you talk about it makes you go oh so okay good that was like it's always cool to hear when something's intentional and you worked for it uh where sometimes you hit gold and you don't know what you did but then other times if you have a vision you can work towards it which is really nice uh so we already sort of talked about this just kind of getting more into the meat of the play right it is about guns and gun gun ownership and gun violence and all those things but also it's not just about that right the play is also about many other things like safety space plays a large role i think there's a certain level of horror in the play that mm -hmm. i really like too i really like when plays can do a little bit of horror fun mm -hmm. uh but <laughs> is is there anything else that i missed that you think the play is kind of about on a in a broad sense i I'm very passionate about the ways in which feminism and the Second Amendment intersect. And I'm actually directing uh, what the Constitution means to me in, in oh. August. It'll, it'll, it's, it's kickstarting um, the season at Syracuse Stage. And, and I'm thinking about our play so much right now because, you know, that play is all about the way in which the Constitution literally doesn't protect women. <laughs> oh, or if, basically if you're not a white man you're you're it's good luck but yeah. um but uh you know growing up having a lot of domestic violence in my family um and then and then just you know as 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 women you know when you are coming of age and then feeling targeted just because you're a woman um just existing in space what has has you know been a ride and and as on this earth and so I think then once I the immediacy of of danger just by going to you know undergrad or going to the movies or going mm -hmm. to a theater and 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 what that means I mean I mean it, you know and there's so we're, we're lucky in in the sense that you know we don't have to face that on a daily basis it's not like you know there's there's war or any, you know anything like that here but I think I think it's just uh that sense of fear really connected to me and I the obsession with it led to the play where it had to happen like I, I didn't really have a choice <laughs> um and I and I think that that's where good theater comes from you know um Sarah Will always said to me uh that you know how, how do you know when to write I asked her how do you know when to write and she was like when you can't stop thinking about it and mm -hmm. that's what happened and so um I think Sarah connecting to space because uh, we didn't really we she, you had asked me very early on what kind of play is this mm -hmm. it was like very basic generic playwright questions of um, what plays are this is this like in your mind and how many characters do you think like real basic stuff um and and I had you know and we had said you know uh a body in space against a mass of people is I think the first thing that image that we sort of set off. And then I, and then that inspired Sarah um, with the architecture bit. And so, um, yeah, I think, and I, I'm a huge Brechtian director. My, the plays I'm most drawn to are plays that point to metatheatricality and, and are constantly referencing we're in a theater. We know we're in a theater. This is all fake, but we're, we're here and we're going to tell a story. And so I think theater feels like the best medium for the things in the play that are being discovered and investigated. And I'm just, yeah, I'm glad it works. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, especially, especially since this play hasn't been done in New York city, I think, I think the, um, yet I should say yet, um, the, the, the audiences, you know, Cleveland, Texas, uh, particularly, you know, Fort Worth and Salt Lake City. It's like, you know, those audiences, a lot of them have guns, you know, and it's not it, it, it's not preaching to the choir like maybe you would in a New York City audience where the laws are very different. I think I think uh, sort of speaking to what you said, right, it's like the thing where you can't stop thinking about it. 
Um, and oftentimes I was talking to another playwright and they said they were drawn to the things that make them angry, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and those are the things like you can't stop thinking about those things. But I think where you struck a really nice balance in this play is with, it's not just sort of this dredge through misery, right? It's, there is the beauty of the prose. There is the, um, the moments of light throughout, right? So it's not. Like there, there are times when I read a script and it's just like hitting you over the head with the, <laughs> with the <laughs> dark toads and like the misery and you're like, ah, I, like I really need something. And so you struck a really nice balance. Uh, at the same time, you're sort of making people think about these tough issues that I really. Yeah, appreciate. I, I think our our actors who played you, it became a different play when an audience was there and they started to get jokes. And they started to have someone to talk to in these big monologues who like wasn't, you know, the director wasn't inside the play. Like I saw in, in all of them, just a shift of just like, oh, okay. <laughs> and it, it was, it was just that reminder of like, oh, play isn't done until the audience is there. And you don't know how some of those tone moments are going to land until you have an audience and they're, they're on that journey. Um, and it was very gratifying to get, get some laughs at little things that I was like, I mean, I think this is funny. <laughs> people, people laugh. Um, and yeah, it takes you on a ride of, I'm afraid of people. And at the end of it, you're like, Oh, people are great. Yeah. <laughs> we need, we need each other. We need to be together, yeah. even though that can be scary. Well, it's like, it's the, it's like the dilemma of civilization, right? Where, Mm -hmm. where we go, well, we're better off together, but then also when you're increasing the number of interactions you have, you're increasing the probability that they're probably going to, they might be bad. Right. Yeah. Uh, Was there, was there anything else when you were going through productions with this play that you learned about your play that you didn't necessarily know previously? I don't think I appreciated the directorial challenge of having a main character not leave the stage <laughs> and even even talking to um we shared it with a costume design class and this whole question of like the costuming of the main character mm. who never leaves stage and in Cleveland they did get they used some voiceover so they got her to have like the quickest instance and she changed into a dress and it was it felt like a big moment it felt like oh she sh- she's shed this one layer and now she's putting on this armor to go into a courtroom to testify and then after that scene she put on this soft robe and it was a really nice way of visualizing that arc um but I don't I don't think I would have done anything different but it wasn't until like sitting in some of those tech rehearsals where I was like oh oh she she's not going anywhere (laughs) and coming from Austin we see a lot of plays here there's there's a lot of ensemble theater. There's a lot of actors moving furniture, bringing on props. Like that is that is the theatrical language here, I would say. And so, and I think Melissa and I share like a an enjoyment of that. So we had brought that in, but then thinking about when is this a necessity and when is this storytelling versus you know we don't want just like it just to be convenient. It has to be part of the experience. So looking at some of that, especially in some of the theaters where the spaces were quite large and Mm -hmm. the actors didn't need to be bringing in things, but to say like, okay, what elements can they bring in that will be useful in the scene, but also have impact. So I, some of those discoveries around the storytelling of props and then just, just like the practical limitations of, of costuming, um, and it's, I really also love the lighting designs for the different productions. I think our designers have brought so much in terms of that tone and showing different spaces. Um, and it's felt like a real collaboration with, with these different elements creating this world. Because um, a play is, you know, it's just a series of problems. <laughs> and this play has some like big problems for the designers to solve. Um and it's it's been really creative, like the way people have have addressed it, and pretty different in the different settings. And then we had two online readings, which also were completely different because you really are back to just actors and words. 
Um, and there was something about the isolation in an online reading that I think worked well. And the sort of direct to, to camera, it felt much more intimate. Yeah, I think each one showed a different aspect of the play. Yeah, I have a greater appreciation for stage direction <laughs> as a director. Uh, and you don't really know what the right ones are until like the third production. That that to me, as you know, a director who works on new work, I was like, oh, these are really important. And you know, the, and and the the ones we thought worked before it was produced didn't work. And mm -hmm. because you know the just the pure problem solving of it all. And so I tell my directing students now, like you read those stage directions and you listen to them, <laughs> unless unless you really discovered in your particular production that it really isn't working because context is everything and blah, 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 blah. But, oh man. And then I, I was, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that we've, ha we've had the privilege of so many productions in different ways, whether online or in person, where we, we say that you can be of any ethnicity, um, but just not white. And we've had like six different actors of, varying races and ethnicities play you and trying that out and seeing if it works or not and, and at the same time figuring out culturally what what maybe doesn't work for a certain mm. race I think was a huge gift to be able to have that experience uh so because you really just can't smatter any ethnicity on a role without doing your due diligence um and taking responsibility for what that might mean in, it, in, in its different contexts. So that was, that was really cool. Well, especially in a post, we tried colorblind casting and we realized that it totally doesn't work, right? Like you have to pay attention to those things. And so I talked to players. Well, there's no sometimes. such thing as colorblind. Well, right. Exactly. Like you can't like, it's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of like when we all tried naturalism in theater and then we all said, Oh wait, but you can't really do that because everybody is like you said constantly knows that they're in a theater right so it's like those things where um we can take things from it we can but then also uh you have to realize that your the audience is constantly smarter than you think and thinking about things that you weren't thinking about uh and so you just have to try it and figure out what works i'm sort of curious cuz you talked about it and i know you talked about your experience as a director but Along with the stage direction thing, is there any sort of way that your other roles in theater sort of inform how you think about your writing or even how you think about the play in general? Because you talked about the stage direction part, but I'm wondering if there's anything else that might inform that. I think <laughs> I am very sensitive to cast size. I've noticed I've written a lot of three-person plays, um, you know, and that it's a nice triangle. Uh, where you can have, <laughs> uh, you would do a lot with three people, but sometimes I look at plays that have big casts um, or even thinking about some of my like writing I was doing way, way, way back when I started writing. And I didn't have that in my head quite as much as just the production realities of the number of people on stage. Um, and I wish I could shake that loose a little bit. Like I do think three is the right number for egress. And we see two of those actors play multiple roles, which is something I really enjoy as a writer and enjoy as an audience and works within the storytelling. Mm -hmm. But having <laughs> experience it, going through the production process or in my other career, I work with touring theater for young audiences and productions size and scale is a big part of that. So when I'm writing, I'm trying to be true to the story that wants to be told, but it's hard to get those practical concerns out of your head. Having been a playwright now more than a couple of times, it, it's really um, helped me as a producer because uh, I'm, you know, um, doing a lot of that at Syracuse stage. And um, I mean, it's made me a way better director, um, but uh you know, uh, figuring out what people need outside of rehearsal. Um, and uh, for the show that's running right now, it has a lot of really heavy themes in it. And um, early on, the producers asked me if 
it would be useful to have an emotional support coach on staff. And I was like, I can do that. I can have that. Great. Yes. <laughs> because typically, you know, it's directors beyond just, um, you know, directing, we're therapists, we're coaches, we're friends, we're, you know, and I'm not only just, if, especially if it's a new play, I'm not only minding the actors, I'm minding the playwright and making sure their needs are met. And mm-hmm. it's sort of impossible to do all of that at once. It's like, what if I'm triggered by the play? You know, what, 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 what kind of space can I hold in that regard? And, um, and I think, especially for a role like you, which can be very hard uh, in a lot of different ways, depending on what you're, you're, you're carrying on your own. I think, I think I'm, I'm very, very hopeful and and optimistic about a lot of the, um, the, the new directions that the industry is going in and, and the ways in which care is being given mm. to um, the team and not just the actors. And so I think I would recommend that for egress. <laughs> And, you know, just to have an, a, someone to talk to that isn't your director that, you know, can help you. And and our our um, emotional support coach was a drama therapist and a, tr- a trained licensed psychologist. So there were there were useful tools that they were able to provide the actors with how to navigate the the, the material in their practice. So it wasn't just like, oh, here's a therapist to talk to. It was it was actually um very active help, Mm -hmm. um, which I was really, really happy about. Just if anyone decides to do the the play, there's a tip. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was talking to, or I was listening to a talk from a director um, at the Guthrie, and she was saying that uh, she doesn't have, um, what she was looking for next is sort of like what you were talking about, is that there's not, there's, there's, we're creating a system of support, but something more direct like that would is like something we should start. Like we got intimacy coaches. Now we need people to mm-hmm. be there just for the emotional weight of the play that actors have to mm-hmm. carry, um, which we've expected yeah. actors and directors and designers and everybody, all the creative team to carry on their own and process on their own. So yeah, yeah. I hopefully that, <laughs> that becomes more a regular thing, barring any, Right. Budget limitations for adding another person working on staff. Well, they have to. It's time to just make that a line item. Yeah. You know, it's it shouldn't be considered extra. Mm-hmm. It, just like intimacy coordinators are not extra anymore. Exactly. It's if you want to do this play, this is what you got to budget for and keep moving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So sort of changing gears a little bit. I just sort of want to talk to you guys about your like your personal writing process, it can be sort of about egress or can be about just in general. Um, So do you, do either of you have like a specific writing process that you approach every play with and try and crack that nut with, or is it, do you find that it varies between different works? Well, this is like you go. Um, (laughs) Well, you're, you write more than I do. So (laughs) I use, well, so I have a a four and a half year old daughter. So I have like my pre- child writing practice which was a little more you know trying to write pretty regularly you know if not I was have never been an ever well I was an everyday writer for a little bit and I did not like it I did not find (laughs) writing more frequently did not help me write on a deeper deeper level um and I can get a little obsessed with streaks and so I was like very into like showing up to do the writing, but not always like bringing ideas. And um, in the end, I was just like, oh, I don't think this is, I don't think this is my process. Mm -hmm. So I'm still searching for that, that post, post child, especially post baby. It was easier with a baby. Now I have a, a wonderful child who wants to play with me all the time, who's fantastic, but requires a huge amount of attention and creativity. Um, So I have less Mm -hmm less for my plays. I mean, now it really feels deadline based and I get my best writing done when there's a deadline of maybe it's a reading, maybe it's going into a rehearsal or some sort of workshop with actors. Maybe there's an opportunity I want to get ready for. Um, I've tried to write a lot over the summer to apply for fall, you know, to hit fall deadlines to apply for summer development and the next thing. Um, 
it can definitely be demoralizing to work a lot and then feel like you've reached a milestone of like, okay, here's my third draft and then not quite know what to do with it. So I try to, I try to find ways to write that are still fun for me. And maybe that's taking a little time away from my day job on a Friday morning and going to a coffee shop or trying to stay up late one night. Um, And particularly once the play takes shape, I find I do enjoy writing it. And there's usually a period where I'm working on a play and I just see tons of things that remind me of the play or that like fill in the world of the play. And that's one of my favorite stages of writing. Um, There's a, a, a turn by my house that I take pretty much anytime I go somewhere, I take this, you know, this one way back and there's a long left-hand turn lane. And it's, I'm always, always ideas for plays or for next scenes of plays are like hitting me in the face that I'm like <laughs> waiting to ter- take this one left. And I try very safely to put them into my notes app and to be like, okay, I hear you. I hear you ideas. I'll be back. I'll come back. I don't, please don't leave. I, yeah. I will. I will write those. So it's, it's a struggle to make time. Um, I will say one of the nice things about now writing under pressure and just having less time to write is that I feel much less critical of my writing and of my early writing. Um, I'm able to sort of throw ideas on a page and then I know to, oh, oh I'm going to come back to this in the revision page. And that just so much of the the first three, four drafts are just trying to hear the play and see what might be there and really trying to get any inner critic or judge just out of the room and being just like, I don't, we don't have time for this right now. (laughs) We'll get, we'll get to the judgment. We'll get to the, to, you know, to the, okay, what's the driving question of the play? What's the character want? What's the structure? We'll get there, but like, let's see what we're working with first and writing, writing under pressure helps with that. Oh, Sarah. Uh, her daughter's adorable. Yeah, uh, she's wonderful. She's 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 she does yeah. perfect. Uh, so yeah, I can't imagine how you compete with Beatrix. <laughs> uh, my problem from is um, shutting up director me and listening to writer me because mm-hmm. usually the way I start is you know I'm directing it in my head, but then you know I you know she's giving me notes and I'm like, but I'm not done. <laughs> so uh, I I then find that um I get into a zone where I'm like oh, okay it's it's just I'm at big world building it's not you know production building so that's mm-hmm. the the trick um, um which I think is why it takes me so long but uh because I will start and then eight hours have gone by and I'm like oh the sun's down fuck um oh I don't know if we can swear on here <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> oh great uh <laughs> um and and um I don't have kids but uh I think that's why I work too much. And so I'm usually directing like five things. And so um, finding time to just say, okay, I'm going to write this thing is, uh, is hard, but I, I, I've, I, it's between shows. I'll sneak a, um, like a weekend to, to just like, you know, lose eight hours. <laughs> but yeah. So do you find I, when I, yeah. I was, go ahead. No, okay. I just, I just, that's, I think that's why I like writing with another human because I'm held accountable. <laughs> and you're also, it forces you to get out of your own head. It makes you put exactly. the idea out and then bounce off of something. And they can either say, oh, that works really well. Or eh, I don't know if that works. Right. Like, and yeah. you're not, you're not having to bounce the idea off in your head and then immediately give yourself a response. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like uh, since you're, uh, you mentioned that you're more of a director, right. That when you're talking about, having a director brain and a writer brain, do you feel like those two things are sort of at odds most of the time? Or do you find a way that they can work together to create, like, are you envisioning the production in your head while you're doing it and figuring out how it could be directed? Or um, do you find that you need to just kind of separate the two? I feel like they're more at odds (laughs) because like Sarah was saying, in terms of um, wrestling with the just pure production needs, um, I feel like if you listen to that too much, it, it inhibits you. And my favorite thing to do as a director is to direct the impossible play mm-hmm. um, to, you know, the thing that that on paper seems this is going to be a million trillion dollars. And and it's not, you know, because it's pretend and there's imagination and 
I love that. Um, and, and the like, Oh, okay, I'm going to make it rain. And then I'm going to dive into a pool and there's no water on stage, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning, um, as a writer, how to, how to show, not tell, and just don't even worry about the production stuff. Cause, cause writers tell me that when I'm working as a director, they'll be like, Oh, I know you can't do that. I'm like, let me worry about that. I'll figure it out. Just write whatever you want. And then I'll do that later. Um, and if we really can't do it, I'll let you know. But normally there, there's always a way, um, which I think also is, you know, the way that I think COVID in a way gave us a gift of realizing that there's so many creative ways to problem solve. It's like, you know, if there's a, a kiss on stage or a fight on stage and someone can't do it for whatever reason, there's a way out, you know? And so I think I just have to, <laughs> I have to figure out how to, make the two get along in my brain but we're getting there and again like directing I've been doing it longer than writing the more you do something the better you get at it and you know I'm just I haven't given up so uh yeah we'll see we'll see how it goes <laughs> I I feel that because I do I do a lot of improv performance and since I like writing and I like dramaturgy right I have to turn off the part of my brain that starts analyzing the structure <laughs> of the seed while I'm in it. Cause otherwise I'll, I'll get to in my head and I'll miss something that somebody else says while I'm trying to figure out the next best place to go rather than just responding. And so I'll, and I feel like that when I'm writing that happens too, where I'll be thinking further than where I'm writing in my scene at the moment. Right. And so then I'm just like thinking about where the scene is going to lead rather than responding to what the characters are saying in that central mm -hmm. moment. So I, t I feel that. Uh, and it's, those are good skills, like that dramaturgy and that like director instincts, like those are all good skills to bring to the process. It's just a question of when, and of like, when is the play ready for those, yeah. that like more interrogation style um, and like making some of those hard choices. Yeah, it's like that that always that usually comes later, right? You mm -hmm. don't want to inhibit your initial artistic impulse like you want to be there for yes. it. Yeah. So what uh, when you're like we talked about, so you're focusing on problems um, and those help you uh, get the impetus to start writing. But is there anything else that like in the world around you that usually inspires you to write? I know, Sarah, you talked about your left turn right? There's like a specific yeah. spot and it's probably like a Pavlovian thing at that point where your brain just turns on for some reason. But is there stuff in the world that also makes you want to write? Like if there's something that really just triggers that for you and makes you want to sit down and start writing? I, I, I think it's about, for me, just um, writing the plays I want to see. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, that's really it. You know, it's like, oh, that that fascinates me and I want to see that and I haven't seen it yet. So let's go. <laughs> yeah. I think it depends on, let me start. Over. I'm often drawn to, to write things that I haven't written before. So like last year I was working on an audio play with two other writers and a dramaturg and it was something set in Austin and it was a form I hadn't worked in. It was with writers I hadn't worked on. And I was like, oh, this is exciting. This is exciting and refreshing to do something new. Um, and I found the ideas for that were really, I mean, they were popping up on my left-hand turn. I was like writing a lot at airports during traveling. Um, oh, writing at an airport is like one of the best, the best places. Cause again, <laughs> you're, you're in, you're already where you're supposed to be. <laughs> You've got this period of, of, unclaimed time and for me that's just a just a really powerful place to to do some writing so it's I'll start with a little seed and then it'll either attract ideas like a magnet or sometimes it doesn't and then I think like oh okay this this play isn't for me to write um and you know you see a different I see different news items pop up or, um, you know, listening to, to different podcasts or conversations, um, and thinking like, Oh, that's an interesting idea. And all of those get stored somewhere and start to flesh out the idea of a play. Um, but I think writing a new play starts more either with a specific opportunity of, you know, Oh, we're working with this actors or we're working with these ingredients or with some sort of question or idea. I can't quite shake. 
I feel like I feel like that's a pretty common answer. Uh, mm-hmm. When I ask the question, um, it's usually just right. Like like Melissa said, where it's like, I want to write a play that I want to see. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, I think I think you're not going to enjoy it if you're trying to write a play that you wouldn't want to go to. <laughs> right. It seems it seems simple to say that out loud, but also sometimes I feel like people do get hung up on. I have to write this play because it's important. Right. Like it's this is something we need to talk about. But if it's not if it's not something you would want to go see, chances are good. Other people probably wouldn't want to go see it either. So people might not find it interesting if you don't have that at the very least. Just taking a like a step back, talking about the play, something I was interested in. um, And obviously this can change for different concepts in directing, things like that. But for you as the playwrights, what did you want to leave the audience with when they left? Like, what was your, what did you want to give to them? Well, the uh, first thing is guns aren't great. And maybe reconsider buying one if you're scared. (laughs) It's not the best way to handle fear. We have a statistic that we share at the end of the play that um, most of the time a gun will be used on its owner. You know, because a lot of the things in this country aren't, are solved with guns when they should be solved beforehand, you know? I think that the heart the, the heart of the play for me is, you know, when you're going through something difficult, that you're not alone. And that um, really uh, reaching out to those around you is the answer. Because um, I think isolation is the thing that gets to you and it 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 spirals and reverberates for her and um, only makes her more alone and more isolated. And that's where the fear comes into play. And it isn't until she's able to wrestle with that then she and find connection and find her community again that she um, uh, can can find peace. And because um, there isn't it isn't really a like a very um, packaged well packaged end i think there it's a start of a new something new you know mm. um where we can imagine what she's going to do and it's different depending on who you are yeah and i and I, I think especially especially with covid we it made everyone cope with their own isolation um as we were literally stuck at home and people people made a lot of really big changes in their lives because of covid uh, <laughs> So uh, I left New York City and went to Syracuse. And now I'm like, okay, yeah, I tried that. That didn't work. I need my people around me. So that's why I'm back in New York City now. Um, I sort of went through use path <laughs> very quickly in a year's time. Um, yeah, Sarah, I don't know what you think. So it's a stressful play to watch. You know, there's a <laughs> lot of, <laughs> it is. There's a lot of tension built. We learn things that have happened in years past sort of get insight into the trauma she's carrying and she's working so hard in the play to be okay and to not confront her trauma face on. And, but one of the signs that she's not doing quite as well as, as she'd like us to believe is she can't sleep. Mm-hmm. So at the very ending of the play, she finally falls asleep and there's mm-hmm. just this relief that I felt in the audience at each part of that moment where we're genuinely happy for her. (laughs) And part of the way she falls asleep is she's surrounded by other people and she's in a theater and it's a funny moment, but it's also for me about being in an audience and feeling this communal pack of like, we're here together, encountering the story, listening together and that it's, it can be in an amazing space to be in. Mm. And I think why the play had such relevance too after COVID was it, there was an element of risk and danger of us gathering, but also saying, you know, this is a value. Us being together is important for our psyche and the sense of caring for each other. And that you does face this realization of like, of, oh, I need to confront these internal things and I need to rest, you know, there's, there's a fight I'm going to participate in. There's changes I'm going to make, but I also need to rest and take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And that sort of compassion and empathy is what I hope 
the audience leaves with for other people and also for themselves. And I think that also feeds into this idea of a gun can be sold as a solution to a problem as something that, oh, this is going to make you feel safe and strong. But as the play digs into that, it says, is is that true? I don't think so. And what are the other ways you could deal with this trauma and find security? Uh, it's like the way that uh, I think the play really forces you to take uh, Like, yeah, it's so internal. And that's because our, that's where the struggle is for the character. But I think it does push the audience to take a step back, right? And ask them to reassess their reactions to things, right? Especially like the gun question, right? Where you go, your gut tells you that it will make you safer, right? But the reality may be different. And we're asking you not necessarily to take our word for it, but to think about it on the outside, right? Don't don't just, when you're in a situation that's dangerous, don't feed into that and uh take that moment to rest like you said wow. and i really i i really like that i really like um again like i don't mind a like a like a sad or somber ending but i also really like when i can leave the theater um feeling positive about something like the play <laughs> may have made me feel negatively about something but yeah. at least i can feel like there's a hope for something in the future right yeah the only other thing that I really wanted to talk about the play that we haven't yet is this image of the alligator that I'm surprised hasn't come up because it's kind of, it's, it's like the, it's the climax of the play, right? It builds up to it. I'm wondering where did that come from? Cause it's such a really interesting image and it's not, it's not that it comes out of left field, but I think it's kind of foreign in the space that you've built that it is, scary and unsettling so i'm kind of wondering where the impetus for that came from sarah took a nightmare i told her about and (laughs) ran with it (laughs) and i had also had nightmares about alligators as a child like it felt so yeah yeah like uh primal um and it becomes this manifestation of her fear that we see transform into a human character and that was something else that we worked a lot on with in different, different versions. And we hear there's this swamp that's there in the background that comes closer and closer, more into her psyche. And my sense of a swamp is just dangers lurking and you can't see it. Like the alligators are scary. (laughs) And so much of them is submerged, you know, where it does, when I think about like a lurking danger that that is the creature that comes to mind and something that you know is almost prehistoric and yeah I don't know it just sort of showed up in the play and mm-hmm. again was a really good instance of like not letting too much practical thinking get in the way because it's you know it's easy to think like we can't have an alligator <laughs> but like you absolutely can't and that I mean it was an interesting um discussion with each of the the productions of like what is what does it look like um and they interpreted it in different ways but it felt like we needed the play needed to explode a little bit and go to a primal animal monster place um to sort of push through this moment and that so much tension has been building to have it explode in that way uh felt satisfying and sort of surprising yeah i i also i i like to write a lot about animals so (laughs) it was not surprising that one one found its way in yeah yeah i she i told her about a nightmare and she wrote the scene with the alligator and you and I was like oh shit <laughs> that works <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a perfect metaphor as Sarah was saying about um the things you can't see because before the play even starts that was her experience with her boyfriend mm-hmm. she didn't know he was a monster and then you know that's why the you know the the play is happening because she's having to confront that um uh so yeah that's where it came from and it's yeah it's been a very different design element in every production and we welcome that well and it can right it can take so many 
especially when you set up a space that I think has a, an element of mystical realism. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, it's not completely natural space. There's constantly ways that the space is shifting and changing. That alligator can mean a lot of different things. So it, you leave it open, which is yeah. really nice. Yeah. It's, I think I find that's also a hard balance where you don't want to be so generic and open-ended that you can't like someone who's reading the play or starting to um, produce it can't envision it right you can't just kind of give them I think it's hard to get a script that is just like has a lot of open-ended questions but you also don't want to make everything so specific that it can only be produced in a certain way right I mean you have plenty of plays that are kind of like that um, that still work but I don't know I'm always drawn to ones where it pushes my imagination a little bit to read um and i think you struck a really nice balance with yours because it it may be uh both envision it at the same time and i'm sure the way that i was envisioning it is probably not like the way that everyone else which is always a great thing to have like even when i looked at the uh mm-hmm. um production photos because i was i was excited to see that it got produced twice um, I was like, oh, that's that's not how I was seeing it in my head. And that's always a great surprise is when I get to see how someone else has a vision for it. And so that was really cool. Well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. So uh, winding it down, um, sort of finishing up, uh, coming back to you guys. Um, this is a new question that I wanted to ask, but is there any sort of theatrical moment in your memory um, from when you saw a play or maybe you read a work uh, that really kind of you remember vividly and sticks with you? I was in high school and saw a beautiful production of Death of a Salesman here in Austin at St. Ed's. Um, I haven't gone back in to see who performed in it, but it was, I mean, I was young and my friend had to leave at intermission for some reason she had to get home. Um, I don't think any of us realized how long that play was, but (laughs) so I, I took her home, but I was so gripped by the story that I found it in a theater anthology book that I had. And I, I finished reading the play because I really wanted to know what happened. Um, (laughs) and then I went back and saw it either the next day or like the next night, um, to see the full thing. And there was just something about the way two things are happening at once in that production that is inherent to the play, but it, it came alive in the production in a way it didn't on the page where we are both in the past and we are in the present. And there was a moment too, where leaves fell and just, it felt so big. And it also was one of those moments where I, in that moment could not be more different than Willie Loman. I was not a salesman. I was 16. <laughs> I was the younger, but just something I felt it. I was on that journey and like feeling that heartbreak. And it it felt like a magic trick. It felt I I couldn't quite understand why it was affecting me so much. That it felt something like I couldn't quite name it, but that really pushed me to invest in the theatrical form in a deeper way. I had always enjoyed rehearsals. I grew up being a, an actor who you know really liked rehearsals and was kind of nervous about performing. But when I started writing, I was like, oh, this is much better. <laughs> this is what I would like to do. And go to rehearsals and be done. I don't have to perform. But just, just of that relationship between the play and the audience, um, that it's something really unique and can be so beautiful. I think it was just, it was a really beautiful production to look at and to have that beauty and that, and have something really moving was, was great. My, I did not know you were going to say Death of the Salesman. That was cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Going all the way back. Um, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite theatrical experiences was um, when I went to St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn. This was like over 10 years ago. Uh, I saw Black Watch. Um, about the Scottish uh, ar- army forces and the the way that in which the story was told. Um, and I just remember two scenes in particular where they're playing, I think it's the first scene, they're playing pool. And then all of a sudden the pool table turns into a, a truck. 
and it, it, it just just by like sucking out the fabric and then and the way that they talk about the um there's a scene where they go through the history of the cost of the uniform not costume the uniform and they are literally the the, the ensemble is carrying the soldier and dr- undressing and dressing him in midair and it just looks so effortless and that's theater you know like we're on for the ride mm-hmm. whatever you tell me to believe in i'm going to believe in it's like if you the minute you open a, an umbrella on stage and you tell me it's raining i believe it's raining you know um and so uh that and that's the kind of theater i love i love um you know just exposing the, the magic and forcing imagination because I, I also think nowadays um you know we we are we're very lucky with all the technology and that is and everything's so immediate now you know you don't have to wait for a phone call you don't have to wait to know where someone is you don't have to wait for anything but you do have to sit in your seat and pay attention and wait for the story to unfold in the theater and i think that that's pretty unique um and rare nowadays so why keep doing it (laughs) it is it does always feel like we're chasing some sort of like uh i don't want to necessarily say hi but like that moment where um everything sort of comes together and you can you'd know that you gave someone something that they're that they're just saying ooh to i think that's that's something i realized recently is i want is i want anything i'm involved in to have an ooh moment where you go (laughs) and then it can come from a lot of different things it can come from a set piece it can come from uh, a transition it can come from just really good dialogue but i just i feel like theater needs to make you go ooh when you just like i had i just watched a production of murder on the orient express where when they revealed the train i gasped and i was like that's what i want it was really great um or even even if you're just having a reaction you're like make me yeah, feel yeah. something <laughs> i remember right before covid hit i went to see slave play before it closed oh. And, um, you know, and I usually go to theater alone. I really like going alone because um, I was running to friends in New York City because, you know, it's a small island and we're all in theater. Um, but I went alone. I was sitting in the balcony and I had heard so much about the show and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to see. <laughs> and I'm sitting next to this other woman around my age and we both collectively had this reaction where we were like, oh, my God. And we accidentally started holding hands. <laughs> because we we were we were laughing so hard and then we were holding hands and we looked at each other and we just started laughing harder because we had the same reaction and that's the kind of thing that you just can't buy that experience of connecting with a stranger Mm -hmm. um in a room full of people and you know i yeah i love that stuff and i'm just so happy it's finally coming back and we're going to the theater again yeah Slowly but surely, we'll get we'll we'll we're getting there again. So, uh, just finishing up. If people hear this and they're really excited by the work, it sounds like you're doing. Where can people find that work if they're looking for it? Sarah, it's on your NNPN profile, right? Yeah, it's, so it's on the New Play Exchange. Um, folks can reach out to me. Um, yeah, I would love, I would love more people to do it. (laughs) Um, I think it would be really great too, for like college students and there's some great monologues, there's some great scene work in it. So our hope is to also get it published. Um, cause that would just be a great way to have it in the world. And it feels like it's really grown into itself. So our, our next job is to like, get it a platform (laughs) for more people to, to do it. Um, yeah, and we're, we're doing stuff. Melissa's very busy. I'm medium, <laughs> I'm medium busy. Well, you get, you have a child as well. So yeah, you're, that, that you're fills in the other end of the medium. <laughs> yeah. She told me she also had an interview coming up, um, but later today. <laughs> She's often doing things that are pretty similar to what I'm doing. I'll be like, I'm going to rehearsal. She's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to rehearsal too. <laughs> Like, I got to work on this play. She's like, I'm also writing a play. (laughs) That's adorable. I can't. (laughs) And this will be coming out in a few weeks. uh, But um, uh, is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to 
plug uh, that people might, if they hear it and they're in the area, they can go see or anything like that. It'll, it will be a couple of weeks, but if there's anything like that that you can talk about. Uh, if anybody is in Austin, Texas, or in that region, I'll have a play for young audiences. That's very different. Um, it's not so stressful. Oh, it's a little stressful, um, <laughs> but it's it's very joyful. There'll be live music. It's called The Girl Who Became Legend, and that'll be in the fall at Zach Scott. So late September through October. Um, great family show. So do check that out. That's my next big thing upcoming. I'm directing what the Constitution means to me uh, in Syracuse at Syracuse stage. So if you're there, um, we open September 15th um, and that'll be really fun. And how long does Bees and Honey run? Till June 11th. So I don't know if it'll, yeah, but uh, it's a, it's such a great play and I'm very proud of it. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. This has been wonderful. You're both amazing. Egress is amazing. Uh, I really hope I see it produced more. Um, And hopefully that's, that's also the other, like, yeah, I want, I want this to be for writers, but if there's ever a producer that ends up listening and it sounds like something (laughs) they might like, hopefully it spreads the word a little bit more. So um, thank you both again. This has been wonderful. And thank you. Yeah. Can't wait to see what work comes next. Great. Thanks, Daniel. Anytime Sarah and I get to be together is a good, is a good day. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. All our music was written, performed, and recorded by Devin Wessels. Our graphic design is done by Lucas Menarchik. And join us next time when we talk to Vincent Terrell Durham about his play, Polar Bears, Black Boys, and Prairie Fringed Orchids. See you next time. (laughs) 